mindful of truth ever exceeding our knowledge and community ever exceeding our practice. Reverently, we covenant together, beginning with ourselves as we are, to share the strength of integrity and the heritage of the Spirit in the unending quest for wisdom and love. So in our little contemplation this morning on spiritual enlightenment, if I were to take a poll now, we would probably get as many different experiences and ways of describing spiritual enlightenment as there are people here. It means something different to different people. For me, it means being motivated by love rather than fear. It means acting with courage, peace, and wisdom. And it means being fully human and connected with life, with my own emotions, and with others. I don't imagine spiritual enlightenment as a permanent state of perfection, which is the way it's described in some religious traditions. In fact, I prefer the term spiritual enlightening to spiritual enlightenment. Verbs let us know that change is inevitable, and that there is no guarantee of any permanent state in ourselves or in others. I don't agree with the idea that at some point we arrive at a state of consciousness where no further growth is possible. I didn't always feel this way. I first encountered the term spiritual enlightenment through the Hindu tradition when I began the practice of Transcendental Meditation, or TM, 47 years ago. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of TM, assured us that if we meditated every day, we would attain spiritual enlightenment in three to five years. (laughs) And I believed him. (laughs) And it was such a great motivator. I meditated twice a day throughout my college years. And in fact, I continue to practice meditation to this day. 47 years later, enlightened? Not even close. (laughs) But even though I'm not enlightened, I do feel that I am enlightening. And probably we all, all here are enlightening, even if we have, we might backtrack occasionally. If I were enlightened, I could speak with authority about the subject. Since I can't do that, I'm going to talk today about how I see the path of enlightening at this point in my life. First of all, I believe that a path is important. A path implies that we have to take an active part in the process of enlightening. So if we want to learn how to play the piano, we have to have discipline. We have to practice every day. We have to find a good teacher. We have to be inspired by listening to good music because we're going to get discouraged every now and then. In some ways, the path of spiritual enlightening is like any other path. We are inspired by the lives and teachings of people more enlightened than we are. We find out what we need to do, and then we proceed some of us step by step. Yet in other ways, the spiritual road is very different because it's filled with contradictions. Here's one. As soon as you start talking about a path that takes you somewhere else than where you are, you're not centered in the present. 
And being centered in the present, right here and right now, is both the path and the goal of spiritual enlightenment. Here's another paradox. You're doing all the right things, following the path as you understand it, becoming more spiritual by the day, when you suddenly realize what you're doing is only expanding your ego, your sense of self-importance, your sense of, I'm more spiritual than you are. Tibetan Buddhist master Chogyam Trungpa called this spiritual materialism. Rather than moving forward on the path, you're moving backwards. So what then? Should we not follow a path? Should we just wait for growth to happen automatically? I don't think so. I believe that we have to understand and work with the paradoxes that are inevitable on the journey of enlightening. What seem like opposites, looking to the future and being in the present, are both aspects of spiritual enlightening. Zen Buddhists love paradoxes. For example, when asked who the Buddha is, a Zen master replied, Well, there is a Buddha for those who do not know what he is really. There is no Buddha for those who know what he is really. <laughs> this is why a common saying in Zen Buddhism is, when if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. What does this mean? It means that if we see the Buddha as different from ourselves, we're living in duality, not unity. The Buddha is merely a concept for us. And our concepts keep us from true knowing. It also means that if we become too fixed on being like the Buddha, we won't accept ourselves. And becoming discouraged, we might just give up. So this leads to another paradox. Seeking inspiration from those we consider enlightened, we might just lose our way. So to do a little experiment, a little poll here, if we, you could think of somebody you consider spiritually enlightened or close to it or in very, very enlightening, <laughs> and this could be somebody living or dead, um, just say their name. Anybody think of anybody? Melissa. Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> anybody else? Jim Henson. Jim Henson. Mr. Rogers, the Dalai Lama, Yogi Bhajan, Deepak Chopra, anybody else? Socrates. Socrates. Do they inspire you? Do these people inspire you? Yes. Who wouldn't want to be like Melissa? <laughs> I didn't know that one was coming. <laughs> I would love to be like any one of these people, even on a good day. I know I'm not a thing like these people. I'm aware of some anxiety much of the time. I often have difficulty responding to others. I wonder if I'm good enough, if others like me enough. I have trouble sleeping some nights. I carry guilt about the past, and I worry about the future. Why can't I be more like... Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my favorites, Peace Pilgrim. Monica and I are familiar with Peace Pilgrim, another one of my favorites. Here's the problem. 
The more I want to be in some state of mind that I'm not, or the more I want to be someplace other than here, the more my anxiety increases, the less peace of mind I have. The more anxiety I experience, the more I start living in the future, waiting for the day when I can have a piece of Thich Nhat Hanh. And the more anxiety I feel, the more I judge myself. The more I judge myself, the more I suffer. The more I suffer, the more I blame others for my suffering, or I blame the situation, or I blame fate. And the more I blame, the less inner peace I feel. In short, the more I strive to be as peaceful and loving as Thich Nhat Hanh, the further I am from enlightening. I've thought about giving up the whole idea of spiritual enlightening, (laughs) but I can't help it. I find it very appealing. So here's how I work with this paradox. First of all, let me reiterate that I do believe being inspired by others is important. It's also important to understand that my present state is often not so enlightened. And so rather than giving up on spiritual enlightening, I encourage my longing to grow. I fuel my longing by reading the words of and being around great people. And this is what gives me the commitment and strength to do the work that can only occur within the present, the beautiful present with all my beautiful faults. Let me also reiterate that I believe spiritual enlightening doesn't occur without effort, without a path. And that path involves work. The work, as I see it, is really inner work. For many years, I saw my, my spiritual work as daily meditation. I still feel that meditation is important. In fact, I've often wondered what the world would be like if everybody practiced meditation, just even for a little bit every day. However, I don't think that this would solve our world's problems because something more is needed, and that something more I'm learning is self-inquiry. And here's how I practice self-inquiry. It might be different for different people. I try to notice how I respond to others and to situations that arise throughout the day. I pay particular attention to conflicts, to times I feel uncomfortable or anxious, and then I sink into that feeling of discomfort as hard as that is. I also pay attention to times I feel relaxed, joyful, and filled with love, and then I sink into these feelings. And then I look for patterns. I ask, why do I keep encountering the same kinds of difficulties? In tracing both good and uncomfortable feelings to their sources, I look back over my day, and sometimes it takes me all the way back to childhood situations. The key of all this is not to judge myself for the low times, and it's not to think myself great for those special good times. So I was at a Buddhist retreat once, and there were long meditations. And during one meditation, I felt so peaceful by the end, just filled with bliss. And when it was time to end, I didn't want to open my eyes. I just sat there. But there was a time of sharing. And so finally, I opened my eyes. And I raised my hand, and I said, 
I feel so much peace. I just, it's just incredible. And the teacher said, that's very nice, but it won't last. (laughs) And, And she was right. By the time we had our next long meditation, all I could think of was how much my knees hurt. <laughs> so, besides not judging myself, I feel it's equally important not to judge others or place blame on others for my own feelings. And that doesn't mean that there aren't times when I need to remove myself from a situation. Maybe someday I'll be able to handle everything, but I'm not there now. This process of self observation and self inquiry takes both objectivity in order to see myself and situations clearly, as well as compassion, a radical acceptance of myself and of others. And I can't do this alone. I look for help from my friends and family, and sometimes a therapist. I don't feel I can change without help. I now see that my wanting to do it all on my own while presenting to others a mask of strength and independence is a form of vanity, and it's a defense. Trying to project some kind of perfect or spiritual image of myself doesn't work. Not only does it create an impossible standard for myself, it distances me from others. So this process that I've described, this process of self-inquiry, may sound more like psychological work than spiritual work. But I don't see psychological and spiritual work as two different things. I've learned from my own experience and from my research on meditation movements that people people can have wonderful and uplifting experiences of a spiritual nature, but their benefits won't last unless they uncover what Carl Jung calls our shadow side. And now, for another paradox, I'm going to call it the Buddha's Dilemma. It's based on Buddhism's Four Noble Truths. The first two truths are life is suffering. We know that one, right? Life is suffering. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering is desire. Now, it's important to understand that Buddhism was born and nurtured in what we now call the Indian subcontinent. And this idea that desire causes suffering is rooted in the traditions of of South Asia, particularly in some forms of Hinduism and Jainism. So the Buddha grew up in an environment that revered renunciation from attachments. Here's the dilemma as I see it. If I don't desire in order to develop this detachment, then I give up attachment to things that matter to me like my family, my friends, my church, even my desire to enlighten. The Buddha himself addressed this dilemma by coming up with a solution, which he called the middle way. So as the story goes, the Buddha, or Siddhartha as he was called, he lived as a prince in the lap of luxury and was protected from anything negative until one evening he escaped from his palace. He went out into the world And he encountered first a sick person, and then a person who was aging, and then a corpse. 
These, of course, represent the suffering inherent in existence. The next thing the Buddha saw was a person who had renounced the world. He decided that's what he was going to do. He left his wife, Maya, whose name means illusion, and his son, Rahula, whose name means fetters. I'm sure you can see the metaphors in these names. He set out to become a renunciate himself and thereby escape suffering. We see here the enactment of the first two noble truths. He saw aging, sickness, and death, the first noble truth that life is suffering, and he sought to give up desire, the second noble truth that desire is the cause of suffering. So he lived with some yogis for a while who believed in renouncing desire. But the Buddha took it to such an extreme that he almost died of starvation. At this point, he decided maybe he was carrying this renunciation just a little bit too far. And that's when he declared his path to be the middle way. He taught that renunciation should not be taken to an extreme. By the way, starving oneself to death is an an ideal in the Jain religion to this day. It's seen as a path to enlightenment. Obviously, enlightenment occurs after you're dead. (laughs) So I'm glad the Buddha didn't take it that far. However, he didn't return to his wife and son, which implies that attachment to family is a form of desire and should be renounced. And this is where the story loses me. Giving up desire can result in a state of disinterest in life and detachment from others. If we give up desire, how can we have compassion? Being detached and showing compassion are opposites, aren't they? Individuals and cultures who follow the path of detachment can become passive and disinterested in progressing, or they become wary of feelings. I once had an Indian friend who told me that I was too attached when a mutual friend of ours died of cancer and I began to cry. I didn't agree with her assessment. I believe attachment to loved ones is healthy and life-affirming. So these are the contradictions, as I see them, in the Buddha's dilemma. But now let's look for the truth that we know is contained in every paradox. Here's how I've worked with this dilemma. Some detachment is good. It allows us objectivity when we observe our emotions and actions. Some attachment is also good, but only if we differentiate between helpful and unhelpful attachments. Our thoughts, words, and actions could be divided into two types, the lower or base tendencies that have their source in fear and higher or moral tendencies that have their source in love. Spiritual enlightening, to me, means disengaging from our lower tendencies and engaging our higher tendencies. So this sounds sensible. I can just give up stealing and gossiping and become attached to giving or to speaking nicely to others. But there are some tricky parts to this. One is that it's not always easy to determine what is a lower or a higher tendency. Anger, for example, might be completely appropriate for a particular situation, or it might be a childish defensive response. So we have to be able to figure this part out. Another tricky part is that we might mix our lower and higher tendencies when we investigate our motivations. I might act compassionately toward another or engage in good works for the wrong reasons. 
If I don't pay attention, it's easy to miss these lower ego motivations. For example, I might be motivated by pride, seeking attention for some service that I've offered. Or by the desire for power, thinking others should just follow my example. Heck, they could just follow me. Or by the need to be accepted and loved by others. So again, self-inquiry is important, and so are relationships. While some alone time is good, some retreat from the world activity of activity is helpful. If it's used too much, it might be used as an escape from learning what we need to learn as we interact with others. So I'll conclude now with the greatest paradox of them all. We need a path, but we're already enlightened. In case you haven't encountered the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, the third is there is such a thing as spiritual enlightenment, which Buddhists call nirvana. And the fourth is that the way to attain nirvana is through a path. So while this formula seems nice and tidy, Buddhist philosophers have been debating its usefulness for millennia. The starting proposition for, for Nagarjuna, who was a second-century Buddhist philosopher, is the idea that a path taking you somewhere other than where you are contradicts the idea of nirvana, which is not some ideal place we need to get to, but is right here in the midst of our lives. The cycle of suffering, Buddhism calls samsara. Nirvana means no suffering. And the famous dictum of Nagarjuna is nirvana equals samsara. The same, no different. This is, in other words, saying no suffering is the same as suffering. Now we are entering the territory of pure paradox. So again, let's look for the truth in this contradictory statement. I don't think that Nagarjuna was insane. In fact, he has been tremendously influential in Mahayana Buddhism, which is by far the largest type of Buddhism in the world. If there is a path at all, according to Nagarjuna, it's to understand emptiness, or shunyata. The problem is, we can't understand emptiness with our mind. It's not an idea, it's an experience that is found at the core of our being. It's surrender to what is, and it's being content with not knowing. Only through not knowing do we enter a deeper awareness. Only through surrender and receptivity can our world be open to new possibilities. Ways of thinking and being that we don't even consider in our normal state, where conventional knowing dominates. Words don't do shunyata justice. I know because I spent many, many years studying this concept. (laughs) Nevertheless, words are what we have. So I'd like to end with some statements from poets and saints who attempt to put emptiness into words. I invite you to close your eyes and allow the words to sink into your being, remembering that emptiness cannot be grasped by your mind. Lao Tzu 
considered the founder of Taoism, said, The further one goes, the less one knows. The Guru Gita, a Hindu text, states, Those who know, know not. Those who know not, know. Jesus said, except you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And think of the kingdom of heaven here as a state of consciousness and not a place. A Zen saying, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Poet T.S. Eliot wrote, at the end of all our exploring, we will arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. From an Anuit shaman, the great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in a river. Rumi wrote, we come spinning out of nothingness, scattering stars like dust. Ralph Waldo Emerson. There is a deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is accessible to us. It comes to the lowly and simple. It comes to whosoever will put off what is proud. It comes as insight. It comes as serenity and grandeur. Mm -hmm. 